Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 7th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist at American Enterprise Institute Fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah, uh, and Author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, this is to me, I just want to say this is like if the day before the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes went on some dinky radio station in rural Missouri, uh, NBC News analyst, big board master, uh, uh, entrepreneur, um, and host of the new The Revolution uh, podcast. It's a six-part podcast series on Newt Gingrich and the rise of the Republican revolution from 1979 to 1994 and beyond. Steve Kornacki. Hi, Steve. Uh, hi, John. No, this is not a this is not a rinky dink Missouri radio station to me, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much. But I am <laughs> ser- seriously, seriously, like uh, for Kansas I, City, I said Missouri, to people over the weekend <laughs> that you were going to be on on Monday morning. They were like, what? You got you got you got <laughs> Steve Kornacki on the show before the election, so we're we're all very excited. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do the thing that I'm not gonna say to you like what's your number like what what's yeah. your prediction because I know that's not that's not your game. But um, uh, I was on your I was on a, a special you did a hundred days before the election, and it was me. I think it was Jennifer Palmieri. I can't remember. Yep, a, that's right. So, okay, that's right. And and I was like, look, there's a way there's a wave coming and she was like no i think we can really pull it out and i'm like i don't know look at the fundamentals or something like that and we're now one day before the election so this is 99 days ago and of course we've been through this kind of bizarre roller coaster where it looked like democrats had somehow developed the secret sauce to avoiding a terrible fate on on election day and you know in the days beyond since obviously we may not know i think it's probably 60 40 that we won't know who controls the senate like at midnight tomorrow you know on wednesday yeah. morning uh because these elections are going to be close and georgia may go to a runoff and and some there are going to be late results from the west coast and all of that um but they look like they were defying it. And now the conventional wisdom over the last three weeks is whatever ballast they got, whatever balloon they floated has come down to earth. And the fundamentals, which are, you know, the economy and the president's approval rating and 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 the direction of the country and all of that, again, speak to some version of a Republican wave. So where are you on this question broadly defined i don't want numbers that you don't have to say who's going to control anything but where are you on the wave not wave what you're you know what the what the numbers are showing here right at the end yeah i mean i'm i'm seeing a few mixed signals i'm seeing a lot more that's favorable in the republican direction than the democratic direction i'll tell you the parallel that i've had in my mind this fall as i've watched the 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 ballot average kind of day to day um, is 2014, and 2014 was the you know slow developing, late building wave, and, and really, you didn't see it until the results came in. Um, and, and the final, if you use real clear as your standard, and I know this has become a debate in in our you know sort of political world over the last week, the poll averages themselves are coming under the microscope. I, I think when you look at the national 
generic ballot. I, I think the real clear still is is fine to look at. We could have that discussion. But anyway, the real clear average is clocking in at two and a half points for the Republicans this morning. Uh, on election day 2014, it was two and a half points or 2.4 points for the Republicans. So it is right there. And I can remember having, you know, I was here at NBC. Um, it was the first midterm I did for NBC it was 2014. And I remember we got the exit poll data, first wave of exit poll data about five o'clock. And um, the, the the readout was in our briefing, we've never seen exit polls this close before. We are in for a long night. In, <laughs> And then by 7.30, Mark Warner was in trouble, in danger of losing in Virginia, and Gene Shaheen was almost losing in New Hampshire, and the wave was on. So I've been wondering if there's, you know, all of these things, when we look at Biden's approval, when we look at attitudes towards the state of the economy, our new poll finds 81% of voters are dissatisfied with the state of the economy. The number has not been that high since 2009 and 2010. When you start looking at those things, I, I've been wondering if we're heading towards that kind of a night in 2014. What gives me pause, the one thing that gives me pause, it's in our new poll, uh, our new NBC poll, which just came out yesterday. And that is, we, we track over time the enthusiasm question. We ask people to rate on, on a scale of one to 10, their interest in the midterm election. And we did see an imbalance in 2014. We did see an imbalance in 2018, favored the Democrats in 2018. And as of yesterday, Unlike two weeks ago, we no longer see an imbalance. We see the exact same number, a percentage of Democrats as Republicans saying they're highly interested in the midterm. So when you start looking at a universe of 120 to 130 million voters, there's it, that's a new variable. And it does raise at least the possibility to me that Democrats do get a lot more just kind of reluctant voters who wouldn't have participated in midterms in the past. Maybe it's the power of negative polarization. You could chalk it up. We could have that whole discussion if it emerges. But that's what gives me pause, I would say. Okay, so this is a very interesting. You're you're mentioning the enthusiasm numbers, and 2018 uh, saw a midterm number of voters in the midterms, the likes of which we have never seen before. Not only absolute, but in percentage terms, 118 million people voted. 118 million people hadn't voted in a presidential election before. I think 2012. I'm not sure. Um, maybe 2008, but there had been no such number. That was in a presidential election. I think the previous midterm uh, before 20, uh, the 2014 was almost 30 million fewer votes. 85 million, yeah. 85 million. So it was literally 33 million fewer votes. Yep. If if the number of voters either approximates or, or outdistances 2018, because... Democrats got 62 million votes, but it's not like Republicans stayed home. I mean, Republicans did stay home because Trump had gotten 63 million in 2016 and Republicans got like 52 million in 2018. But you would have you would have rejoiced at such a relatively small decline in your vote in uh, previous years. It's just the Democrats like blew it through the roof. So um if we have this big number, if we get to 130 or 100, you know, 100, you know, like 10 percent less than the 2020 presidential election, which was 155 million votes, I think, then yeah. uh, do does any of this like slicing and dicing and looking at, you know, who's moved this way and who's does any of that matter? Or are we really talking about something that is going to be a close approximation of the nat natural national political divide? 
I mean, yeah, that's my question. The closer you get to, we won't get obviously the presidential level, but the closer you start inching into that territory, the more I think you could be in a in a situation. That's that's the the scenario I think for Democrats where you know they're getting reluctant Democrats who don't like who don't approve of Joe Biden's job performance. Democrats who have issues with the Democratic Party, but are ultimately motivated by disliking the Republican Party and disliking Donald Trump even more. And they just turn out because there's this high level of of interest in politics, because, like, yeah, 2014 is a very good example. Eighty five million was the turnout. And we did see while our, our generic ballot in 2014 in our NBC polling was not showing an overwhelming Republican night. We were showing a significant Republican advantage in enthusiasm. It was a nine, I think it was a nine or 10 point gap heading into that election. And it translated into, into all of those gains. So, and I think the other issue too is just realistically here, the, the undertold story or the, 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 the story of 2020 that got told after we settled the presidential election was that Republicans had actually had a very good night in the House. And they, they clawed back a lot of what they lost in 2018. In 2018, with that really, really high midterm, Republicans lost a lot of squeakers. A lot of two, three-point House races just didn't go their way. They came close, but not quite close enough. They clawed back a lot of those in 2020. So I think that also eats into potentially the number they could right. get in 2022. They so so where I want we- Noah to get in here, but one, one last thing before Noah, because just deal with one thing, and then Noah can get into the innards. But we have these issue-based uh, polls or you know polls that say how do you feel about the economy how do you feel about the border how do you feel about crime all of this on which republicans have massive advantages 20 30 points and then you ask what are the most important issues to people and aside from abortion and i don't mean to like belittle the importance of abortion in this election because we just don't know where it's going to come down you know Economy, crime, the border, like one, three, two, one, three, and four, or one, three, and five, or something like that. And Republicans are 30 points up. And yet, in your NBC poll, this last poll, the generic split, meaning do, do you prefer a Republican or a Democrat, to, you know, is one point. And this has been, it's been like this all year. And I am, something is, something, something is odd. like this isn't jiving you know like it doesn't make sense for the most important issue to be inflation republicans have a 30 point margin on inflation and then have a one point you know preference in the generic ballot like my head and with the president in bad shape right in the low 40s so what do you make you know as somebody who studied this so what do you make of that yeah. So, I mean, our, if you combine economy and inflation, because in, in our poll, they separate them out. So yeah. just com- combine them together as a top issue. It's 37 percent in our poll. That is number one. And there is the, the Republican advantage has been about 30 points on that. We've been finding number two in our poll. We it's phrased as threats to democracy. And in our poll, that's been a, a huge Democratic advantage. That clocks in at 23 in our new poll. So you got 37 on economy inflation, 23 on threats to democracy and abortion comes in third at eight. So you're, if you're a Democrat, you're getting economy at 37, then the combo of threats to democracy and abortion, at least you're getting that over 30. Then you've got crime and immigration. 
they're in the lower single digits. But yes, those are overwhelmingly Republican when you when you break them down. So yeah, and it definitely an issue advantage there for Republicans. But the one shift, as I say in our poll, is when we checked two weeks ago, we had Republicans up in the generic ballot, not overwhelmingly, but we did have them up. We had a nine point Republican enthusiasm advantage, right? Seventy eight to sixty nine in the new poll. It's flat. It's seventy three, seventy three. So that's the that's the shift that took place in our poll to the extent that that is real. And that is what happens, I, I think, is the big variable you know, tomorrow. So my only final question and then is you you see a nine point shift in two weeks of Democratic enthusiasm. That's not a shift because it just means people are getting off their who said they were unenthusiastic are now saying they're enthusiastic like it's not like the republican number declined right i mean the republican number if it, it was, did fall a few points oh, no. did. okay now, you could have but margin for error yeah. okay so um so that again would be a complete reversal of late breaking trends in an election that seems to be going one party's way <laughs> For the enthusiasm level of the of the of the party that's going to take a hit to rise just before the election, the classic thing is that there's a kind of enthusiasm meltdown, or like people go, "My people are, I'm just not even going to bother. Like, why am I even? And I don't like them anyway. And the hell with them." And you're not seeing that. So, as I say, maybe we're just in a new atmosphere. But Noah, you don't think we're in a new atmosphere, and you wanted to talk to Steve about some poll stuff yeah i hate to ask you a two-part question here steve actually i have multiple part questions but i'm going to stick with two this is an invitation for you to only answer the question you want to answer reporters (laughs) stop asking people two-part questions nevertheless breaking my own rule um politico this morning uh, in playbook doing a little bit of expectations management um saying we're we don't know what constitutes a wave and we're only going to use the w word wave unless uh, Joe Biden gets into the Clinton-Obama-Trump territory of losing over 40 seats. Uh, Now, Clinton-Obama-Trump territory means that your party is starting from a place under 200 seats, Uh, meaning, and Republicans aren't starting there. They're starting from 212, so there's less ground to cover. If they were to pick up 40 seats, it would be 252, which is, I think, the largest Republican House majority in close to a century, 1946, is what I understand. Um, First question is, does a wave, is it a wave if they get anything less than a grand historic margin in the House, first of all? And second of all, if there is this manifestation of Democratic enthusiasm that you're seeing late, where does it start? Where do you see it? My my instinct is something like Abby Spanberger's district, VA7, which is a little bluer, a little more redistricted to be a little bit more bluer. But that's where you're going to get really affluent, college-educated white voters who probably fit the Democratic profile, demographic profile of a Democratic voter more. But where would you expect to see that? And they count votes early. Uh, But where would you expect to see that manifest early in the night for people who might be listening to this and are now very apprehensive based on John's assessment of where the political (laughs) winds are headed? Well, yeah, the wave the wave is a subjective thing. I mean, I I would just I if they're setting and I haven't seen I haven't seen I'll confess a playbook this morning. But if they're setting, take my word for it. Yeah. Well, look, I, I would call 2006 a wave and it was less than 40. That was the George W. Bush second midterm election. And I would call that a wave for Democrats. And I think the number was 33. So I think you can come in under 40 and it could still be a wave. And I think you're right. A lot of this has to do with starting point. And that's where that's where I think it's a, a, a part of this story tomorrow night is that if Republicans have a night where they take, I, I don't know, they gain 20 seats or something like that. To me, it's almost a two election story because they began it in 2020. 
you started to see it with what they won back in 2020. This is sort of like Democrats in 2006 and 2008. Democrats had, they got 33 in, in 2006. They had another great 2008. The, the combo of the two, I think, was 55. And it put them at this really high point in the House where they then you know, lost all that ground in 2010. But, but I think you know, that could be, a, a, in my view, if, if, if Republicans are getting something like 20 seats even, in light of what happened in 2020, they'll, they'll have functionally come close to erasing all that they lost in 2018. Not to interrupt, but that's political playbooks is assessment is that's quote subpar night for Republicans. And that would be the Democratic message that we outperformed expectations. We did better than we thought and we don't have to change a thing. Yeah. I mean, look, I, to me, if you're down into if you're down into single digits, if you're down into um, it, it, it's it's tough to say. And, and let's see how the Senate goes, too. If the Senate is literally decided by one seat by a very narrow margin, even if Democrats well, lose it, I imagine they could they could claim a, you know a, a, some kind of a moral victory there. But um, yeah, I, I guess overall, I, I, I think it's unrealistic that Republicans are going to get 40 seats. And I think they could still be have a, a night they're very happy with if they're in that 20 to 30 range, um, you know, 25, something like that. Um, in terms of, yeah, so you mentioned like some some early uh, uh, early indicators. Virginia, yeah, seven o'clock poll closing in Virginia, although um, in terms of the, getting the vote counted out, I, I'm they can be a little slow, particularly in northern Virginia, in the seventh district, which is Abigail Spamberger's. Has kind of moved into Northern Virginia. It's it's been redrawn dramatically by redistricting. Um, I guess the way I look at that, I, I look at Virginia as three tiers, three districts. To start with the second district, which is Virginia Beach, and this is Elaine Luria, the Republican and a Democratic incumbent. She's it's a Biden plus two district. So this is a threshold for Republicans. If they can, if if that's where they stop on election night, if they just win the the districts across the country that are held by Democrats that Biden carried by two points. They get the House. It's not an impressive night, but that's that's like a threshold for them. So I think Virginia, two is that uh, Virginia seven is Biden by six. And that if you can get that, if you're a Republican, you can get that. Now, I think you're talking more. You're in that 20 plus range. I think if you're getting a seat like the like the seventh, this is a seat that in the governor's race last year, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, carried by five points. So it's a Republican is capable of getting it. Then I would look up to the 10th district which is right outside Washington, D.C., which is this area that's just tremendously moved, you know, away from the Republicans towards the Democrats. Now you're talking a Biden plus 18 district where Republicans have a candidate. They're very, as Jennifer Wexton's the Democratic incumbent, Republicans have a candidate they've been pretty excited about. I don't think he's going to win, but, you know, if we're, if, if, if I'm looking up at Virginia, you know, 930 or something, and that race is inside of five points or something like that, now I think you're in like, real in dispute. Well, I, I guess it, it still would might not be a 40 seat game, but you're in, in my view, you're in wave territory. Okay. So I want to tell a story about what happened to me last night. I was driving uh, back from Connecticut to uh, Manhattan. And this is uh, Dan, Dan Sinar made fun of me last week for mentioning lawn signs, but here, here's what happened to me. I was on my way back from Connecticut on the Hutchinson river parkway, going down to the cross County parkway into Yonkers. And then into New York City, and suddenly the Hutchinson River Parkway was closed, and everybody had to go off and, and wander through the streets um, of Westchester in order to get back to the Hutchinson a couple of miles later because it was closed. And my wife was like, "What's going on? I don't understand. Why? You know, is there an accident or something like that?" And then, and then it hit me 
that uh, this was Biden or Clinton. I can't remember who, but it was. It turned out it was a political event that was shut down. That the Hutchinson River Parkway was shut down because somebody was having a major political event at a nearby like golf course or country club or something like that, and the Secret Service had shut the highway down. And that's in Westchester County. And of course, one of the big stories here is New York State, uh, which has this gubernatorial race that is unexpectedly close. And I think is it four district, four or five congressional districts that Democrats figured, I know this is, there's a whole redistricting story we won't get into, but they figured in an ordinary year, they would have them in the bag where where you had the kind of if, if we saw the NBC News poll today a year ago, you would say, okay, well they have it in the bag, and um, they're fighting for their lives, including the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Sean Patrick Maloney, who you know this would be the first time that a campaign committee chairman, guy who dispenses all of the money, uh, lost since 1982. Um, so. It's just not people take it in part to to have safe seats because they can kind of repurpose whatever they need if they get into trouble. Um, so so immense efforts are being made to shore up New York, a state that Biden won by twenty three, and then I think Hillary won by twenty. I mean, Hillary won by twenty three or twenty five or something like that. I mean, so that's my anecdote. It's like the Democrats can say we're defying gravity and this is everything, but they're not behaving like but, but they're defying. Is... They're not going at Republicans in Republican strongholds. They have to defend territory but this at the is very where, end. This is where I think the earlier poll, the, the polling questions and the priorities you mentioned, Steve, are interesting because it seems like up until the last couple of weeks, the Democratic Party has taken... Um, the threats to democracy question as a proxy for hatred of Trump. And they were wrong to do that because there are plenty of people who think the Democratic Party and or the mainstream media or whatever they whatever they define as a threat to democracy, it's not entirely a one-sided threat. It's viewed by a lot of voters as much broader than Trump, although I think it probably the majority are speaking to election denialism and that sort of thing. So there's that concern, which I think they're only waking up to recently. Um, but I've, I've been struck in these gubernatorial races in particular, how many people who will proudly say to a reporter that they are Democratic voters, they are going to vote for the Republican. I'm thinking of the Michigan governor's race, for example. So there you have Tudor Dixon really giving Whitmer a run for her money. And, and Dixon has spoken directly to these sort of long tail COVID concerns of families about schools and particularly Muslim American families and their concerns about education, which is such an echo of how Youngkin won in Virginia. And so I'm wondering if you've seen, that's the one that really struck me. Are there Are there other races like that throughout the country that perhaps we haven't been focusing on the quirk of staunchly Democratic voters just kind of fed up at the local level with things that are happening, particularly with regard to families and economic matters. Yeah, I, so Hochul in New York is is obviously right in that category. You mentioned Whitmer in Michigan. Another one I'm looking at is Sisolak in Nevada. I think Sisolak's in trouble out there. And I think if he goes down COVID, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's just, it's a belated reaction to COVID restrictions uh, in Nevada. Um, the question I have in all of those uh, states we just mentioned is they have huge implications for control of the House, because in New York, as you're mentioning, there are four competitive congressional districts on Rhode Island, on, Rhode Island, on Long Island. Two of them, Republicans are trying to take over. And you can even if Hochul wins, let's say Hochul survives by 
three, four points in New York. You know, so Zeldin overachieves but falls short. He necessarily is going to be driving up huge numbers on Long Island, huge numbers, you know, when, when you get outside of New York City and Buffalo, essentially. And I think that's the kind of night the question then becomes, is it enough to flip a District 3 or a District 4 in Long Island? These are double-digit Biden districts currently held by Democrats. They are both open seats. Um, and one of them in particular, Republicans have a candidate they're pretty excited about. So if there, if there is a localized reaction here to Kathy Hochul, does it lift Republicans in those seats? Does it lift them? Then you go to the Catskills, you go to the Southern Tier, 17th, 18th, 19th District of New York, re-pickup opportunities for Republicans there. They could get five seats off of a, Ze- a good but a, a good night for Zeldin that's not good enough to win the governorship. But that's one of my, and you could do something like that in Michigan, and you could definitely do that in Nevada. That's that's one of my big picture questions for this election, though, is some of the polling has been suggesting that this thing that we talk about is, is, is no longer a, 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 a variable in politics, maybe back a little bit, split ticket voting. Is there split ticket voting where folks are fed up with Hochul and give her, either knock her out or give her the scare of her life in the governor's race, but still vote Democratic in some of these congressional races? Well, by the way, just to just to give people one little bit of flavor and then, and then go back to Noah, um, one reason Democrats are not did not lapse into total despair over this Zeldin surge is the interesting bio, bio, biological biographical fact that Hochul is from Buffalo and was the Congress member that represented Buffalo before she became lieutenant governor, which means that there are people up there who have voted for her before. Nobody voted for Kathy Hochul for lieutenant governor. There is no separate vote for lieutenant governor, and she won the. Is there? I don't think there is. I'm pretty yeah, sure there is. No, right. It's a it's a one a single ticket. So, but the one place that people have actually voted for Kathy Hochul and that she won a seat, and not the one, but I mean, you know, in 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 the last 15 years, was the Buffalo area. So there is a history of people whom you might actually expect would cross the aisle to vote for Zeldin, maybe who might might like remember and like Kathy Hochul, particularly older voters who might remember who they voted for and older voters are disproportionately the voters in midterms. And that may save her. Noah, you wanted to go back to the second part of your two part question. This is actually the whole new question. I had the two parter and now we're going to have a whole third separate question. Okay. Okay. So um, minority voters, this is something that I've been seeing and have been reluctant to acknowledge that I've been seeing um, because it just should not be. But to go into the crosstabs, to p- pick the poll, go into the crosstabs of the generic ballot polling, registered voter, likely voter, what have you, you do see a fair amount of African-American voters saying they're going to vote Republican. A lot of people have been, including myself, been reluctant to acknowledge this. But the Wall Street Journal has a piece today on its latest Um and it finds about 17% of black voters would pick a Republican candidate for Congress over a Democrat. That's pretty consistent with where USA Today has been, where uh, NBC has been, um, CNN, you know, you just pick your poll. And, I, you know, let's assume that's true. Let's assume that this isn't just what they're telling pollsters and they're going to be dis- disaffected on Election Day and not actually turn out. You go back into the cords of distant memory to around 2004 which is the last time I remember Republicans thinking about the prospect of a double-digit uh, support from African-American voters in an election. And if you run the numbers on that, and it was actually really substantial, the extent to which just that teeny amount of support among uh, Black voters can shift districts in the exurbs, um, for example. 
in ways that really affect a, a sea change. And that's how the Wall Street Journal pollsters describe it. They describe it as a generational change, generational shift that could have a profound impact in the future. Let's stipulate that we don't know the future and won't be able to predict it. Let's just focus on tomorrow. Is that a, is that likely in your view that Republicans could pick up double digit support among African-American voters? Let's, let's leave Latina voters aside who are close to split down the middle, just we'll African-American voters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, the Latino one is, is where I, I have, you know, more of a grasp of it just because we have some some evidence. But yeah, the the black vote, I guess. I know the, it's it's one of those things that you, you don't even want to acknowledge being true because it can't possibly be true. But yeah, we've seen I mean, so much of it. Yeah. It's, and I think it'd be high double digits would be the, you know, 18, 19, 20, as opposed to 10, 11, because I think I think Republicans have shown they can get 10 or 11 percent. Um, but if they could get close to 20 percent of the black vote, it would. Yes, that would be that would be look at a state like Georgia right off the bat or you know North Carolina. I mean, that's that's it for the Democrats if, if something like that's happening. But I kind of view it as, yeah, I've been seeing that in the polls, too. Um, and I view it as sort of like October 2020 and how we were thinking about the Latino vote. Then I remember we were getting a lot of signs in the fall of 2020 that maybe something was happening there. And it was my attitude was I want to see it actually happen in an election. <laughs> I remember election night 2020 clicking on Miami Dade and okay, we're seeing it. And so I same it's the same thing with this one. I want to, you know, I want to see it. If it and if it does, yeah, then I because I, I think there is a lot of talk about a, a big picture, longer term realignment of politics here, where it's going to be much more driven by class, gender is going to be a component of this, and it's going to fold in certainly Latino voters, but also black voters, non-white voters into the Republican coalition. It's going to make it much more diverse, much more class-based. There's a, certainly a theory on that. And it's, if, if what you're describing actually starts to play out here, it'd be consistent with that. But I'm, I'm of the attitude of let's, let's, let's see it tomorrow as right. a starting point and then, and then have that discussion. So is that like a mayoral uh, race in Los Angeles sort of thing? Like where, where does that manifest? That's well, that's interesting too, because I mean, if, if you look at the, um, the, the polling splits in the, the, the Karen Bass, uh, Rick Caruso race in, in LA, it's looking close. It looks like Caruso's tightened it. Um, is he doing it mainly on the strength of the Hispanic vote and the Asian American vote, whereas the African American vote is much more democratic? It, you, you may, that may, if he wins, that may speak more to inroads in Southern California that Republicans have made with Hispanics and Asian Americans. I, there's something so fascinating to me about, about, Particularly the 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 Hispanic question and the suburban female question and 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 how much they have uh, also swung in favor of Republicans, because for years, election after election, we heard Republicans are not doing right by women voters and women in the suburbs and and by minorities and by Hispanic voters, and they are gonna they're gonna reap the whirlwind. They're gonna, they're gonna be in big trouble. They are doing. None of the things they are not offering them anything that was sort of thought in traditional kind of democratic terms that that um, these these populations wanted, um, you know, in the, in the sort of in the realm of social programs and, and whatnot and sort of easing up on on um, uh, conservatism. Uh, uh, Republicans did none of that. They they. In, in response to, to these claims about how they were they were they were going to just lose everyone in, in these communities. They did none of that. The Democrats managed to lose these people back to the Republicans all on their own. It, yeah, it's one of it's one of the 
great ironies of the last decade of, of American politics is to go revisit that moment after the 2012 election when the RNC commissioned its autopsy. And then, uh, you know, essentially the autopsy was got to make inroads with Hispanic voters. Immigration's a big part of it. You saw there was that immediate push post-2012 for comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, and then the living, breathing um, refutation of the uh, autopsy ran for president in 2016, got the Republican nomination, won the presidency, and then in 2020 um, produced a significant shift of Hispanic voters away from the Democrats and toward the Republicans. I think there's a lot of lessons in that about how we think about politics and how we should challenge some of our assumptions a lot more than we uh, than we do. I mean, I remember myself, I mean, just... I don't like to think that I reflect conventional wisdom, but in 2012, I certainly reflected conventional wisdom. And my presumption was that uh, Trump's behavior on toward Latinos was going to have real world consequences. Romney had gotten 29% of the Latino vote in 2012. And the idea was, look, I mean, however, whatever happens, this talk about the judge and this talk about the, the gold star family of dad and all like, this is not good. Like, you know, they'll be lucky to get 15% of the of the Hispanic vote. And uh, Trump got exactly the same vote in 2016 that Romney got in 2012, according to every way we can try to sort of understand this through exit polling and whatever. Uh, that should have been a marker that um, what people, the, the idea that people had that there was something monolithic about the about the Hispanic vote was an incredible mistake and that Hispanics did not have an identity politics in the same way that African-Americans do. And then you have 2020. And if this, here's the thing, if the polls that suggest that there will be some kind of close to even split among Hispanic voters broadly defined between Republicans and Democrats in this midterm, I don't think we're even beginning to suss out like what a gigantic event that is. Like this is the shattering of the post uh, New Deal coalition among the Democrats. Hispanics are the largest if you if you aggregate them, which maybe you shouldn't. But people of Spanish speaking heritage, let's say, are the largest minority group in the United States. They're larger than than African Americans and if they and if they are not a reliable part of the Democratic coalition any longer, Democratic coalition's got to go somewhere and find somebody to replace them that you know, they can't just say okay, well they're gone, like they have to do something to draw others in to well that would be college educated affluent suburban white people. So the, well, and also the the or, women. This, this this same lesson should apply to some of these suburban women voters too. I think where you cannot any longer. I think again, I think the Democrats assumed well, we've got abortion post Dobbs. We they're locked in. We know they're going to vote for us because they're the risk to abortion is too great. Uh, but the, many of these women have kids in the public school systems in this country, and they are very upset. I mean, at the suburban Philadelphia, suburban Virginia, you can you can look around the country or grandchildren. And find, yeah. Yes, children or grandchildren in a school system that that where parents of, of their own volition and from multi-party groups and coalitions, I've seen this happen even here in cities like DC, are getting rid of school boards that are trying to, to sort of change curriculum and, and move the progressive agenda 
too quickly for the taste of these suburban parents. It's not that they are bigots or, you know, terrible people. A lot of them just think the pace of change has been initiated in the last five years in their kids' education and some of the socially progressive messaging that's been done in the name of, of you know, uh, gender issues and race issues is going too fast. And I think that's another thing where Democrats' response to that has been, they're fascists, they're evil, they're terrible people. Well, some of them might be, but a lot of them just think, look, this stuff doesn't belong in schools. Our kids aren't performing well anyway on the reading, writing, arithmetic stuff we're concerned about. Renaming a school is not our priority. We want our kids better educated. And those voters will also, a lot of those are suburban, a lot of them are Gen X women who are raising kids um, and, and older millennials. They will have a say in their local elections. And I think Democrats should be concerned. No, that's they a cycle be. issue. That's a cycle. This cycle is a crime cycle. This cycle is an election cycle. And above all, this cycle is an inflation cycle. That wasn't the last cycle. And there's no guarantee it's going to be future cycles with the drift of educated suburban affluent voters into the Democratic column. Um, mirrors, parallels, uh, the flight of minorities and working class voters to the Republican column, you can see a much more affluent, educated, uh, ac actually a much more, dare I say, conservative Republican Party or conservative Democratic Party. If this if the these shifts continue along the same trajectory, nothing continues along a straight line, obviously. But if it were, you could see how that how that would happen. Look Part of the problem here in having this conversation is that if you look, you say, well, you know, inflation is going against the Democrats and crime is going against the Democrats and schooling is going against the Democrats. Latinos are moving away from the Democrats. Suburban women are sort of are going against the Democrats. Still the case that the Democratic Party nationally got 7 million more votes than the Republican Party in 2020. And the Republican Party is historically a smaller party than the Democratic Party. I mean, it, in the 1980s, and maybe Steve can talk a little bit about his uh, his uh, brilliant um, documentary podcast. I mean, in the 1980s, the Democratic Party was literally twice the size of the Republican Party if you asked voters. 44% said they were Democrats. 22% said they were Republicans. Nonetheless, Ronald Reagan won 49 states in 1984. And by 1994, Republicans had won 63 seats in the house so nominally people that's no longer the case the parties are much closer to parity but they're not at parity and when push came to shove uh democrats got 10 percent more of the vote in 2020 than republicans did so i bring this up only to say that as we're talking about this people shouldn't think Man, the Republic boy, I'd rather be a Republican than a Democrat in the coming 10 years, because that's actually Republicans are still in a position of slightly natural disadvantage and may have been pushed back into the center of the political conversation by Democratic and Biden administration missteps over the last two years, which I guess is Noah's point. Like this cycle is uniquely bad in a weird way. I guess like 94 was uniquely bad for. Democrats, because um, the healthcare debate went so sideways for them, and 20, 2006 was uniquely bad for Republicans because Iraq and Hurricane Katrina went sideways. For and then twenty ten, we had the fact that there was no recovery, and and Obamacare went sideways for the Democrats. So in this case, you if if Republicans have a good night, you're going to say, look, inflation and crime just. They just knock the stuffings out of this, but they, but both of those are addressable. Like there can be serious political change. I mean, inflation's not so easily addressable, but nonetheless, crime, the policies were enacted that caused 
the reversal in crime. They may not be enactable at the at the federal level in the House and the Senate, but if the political winds shift, people are going to abandon these positions and shift them, and then that will not be a liability for Democrats anymore. Yeah, although I I think and this is this is one of these things where it's like we can have the discussion now and we'll know the answer in twenty years, yeah, but yeah. It, it, where you get to this question of how the parties may be realigning, what we may be seeing happening right in front of us, and and what the long-term implications will be for the posture of each party. So uh, tomorrow, yes, if Republicans have a really good day, yes, it's it's the economy, it's inflation, it's crime, that's what we'll be talking about. But if we're looking at numbers that show continued Republican progress, specifically with Hispanic voters, because um, what I think I see happening with the with the Hispanic vote is what's happened with the white vote. And with the white vote is there's been this just incredible divergence based on college degree, no college degree. It's it's a sort of a, a social class difference here. It's one of the reasons why the, we've had so much trouble in polling because we're no longer getting these non-college white voters into the polls. And that non-college white group has become just massively Republican, especially in like Midwest states. And the college plus group has become massively Democratic, whereas a generation ago, you know, Republicans would have cleaned up with those voters in suburban areas. So there's already been a shift there with white voters. We, we're seeing the roots of that with Hispanic voters. So the best data we have from 2020, we'll put it this way. In, the best data we have from 2016 is that Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by 38 points among Hispanic voters. That same data says that it came all the way down to 21 points in 2020. That's the ground that, that, that Trump gained. But that there was a there was also for the first time really a college non-college divide among Hispanic voters and among non-college Hispanic voters Republicans broke 40 percent and only lost by 14 percent on the college side it was Democrat plus 38. So if that trend is continuing then what I think you could really see happening here is just like you see with white voters non-college Hispanics could become they could be on their way toward full-fledged, again, this is years off, but toward full-fledged Republican sort of, you know, uh, membership. And, and that could really change the party. And again, it, the other effect of that is it's, it's, it's not just that it's white college educated that dominate the Republican party, but then you start breaking down, it's college educated Hispanic voters who become sort of the part of that democratic backbone. Maybe you start seeing something like that among black voters as well. And, and really that kind of social class thing becomes the big divide between the parties. And, and I think we're living in a very different world if something like that ever plays out. Okay, okay. You know, you're, wait, he's hedging too much. Okay, gun to your head, Steve. Nazis have your parents. The New Deal Coalition is dead. <laughs> Not the New Deal Coalition. Yeah, we're sir, gonna, no, the New Deal Coalition past is the dead. New Deal Coalition. The New Deal Coalition was Southern, was segregationist in the South and <laughs> hey, black people well, in the North. Like, class this is the post-New Deal Coalition. Post-New, sure. Dead yeah, enough. I mean, Oh, I, I, the the white working class component of it, I think, pretty much is. Yeah. You know, and my question is, is it going to broaden? Rich Rich Lowry, right after 2016, said something that I, I've never seen equaled. I mean, he said it. We were on this National Review cruise uh, right after Trump won. And he said, I think we've all had the experience of talking to Trump voters and that the thing that makes them different from non-Trump voters is that the Trump voters tend to work with their hands, which I thought was a really interesting, because it's not working class versus non-working class, maybe, because you're also talking about small businessmen, you know, uh, people who may have gone to college, people who own garages, people who own, 
you know, six figure incomes, quarter million dollar a year incomes, right? But are are blue collar, right? So I'm not even talking about blue collar now, but I mean, thought workers versus body workers or something, you know, head workers versus um, body workers. And when you think about that, that really does transcend. Not only does that transcend boundaries, but of course, you're talking about something that is disproportionately uh, voters who have classically been Democrats, right? Because they're worried about being screwed. They're not, they, the Republican Party was the party of their bosses or their managers or something like that. And, you know, they don't really care about them. And now they are themselves the managers and they're looking at and they're saying there are all these regulations and they're, you know, and like I just spent two years wearing a mask because of COVID, while everybody who got to work at home could sit at home without their mask on, I got to work eight hours a day with a mask on. I know it wasn't two years, but you know, wherever it is. And I I think that's an interesting way of looking at it because it then doesn't go to this sort of educated versus, it's more like, do you sit at a desk or do you you work in a different way? And if you sit at a desk, um, and I think the parties have classically made terrible category errors because when dealing with, let's say, Latino voters, they have mistaken, including Republicans, but particularly Democrats, have mistaken the activist elite of the of these ethnic groups for the for you know if they if they cater to if they not cater to them, but if they if they do what they want or they they take on the par- policies that they want, that doing that stands in for the whole. And the what Latin if those X people? Error. What if the Latinx people not only don't represent the majority of the way Hispanic voters think, but actually are at cross purposes with them? And then so the further you go in their direction, the more you accelerate the alienation, you know, at the at the ground level. And you're not going to feel that or see that because in the end. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not the candidate of, of that, you know, she she is the bartender who became a congressman, but her constituency is Williamsburg. And, you know, her constituency is white 30-year-old New Yorkers. And th- that's who, you know, she'll win by 30 points every time because of them. But they think they're... <laughs> They're thinking for some representative of the Latino world. Anyway, it's a kind of weird. And then the, you know, the, the whole new world uh, uh, possibilities here of the party realignment in this context is that so then if you have um, the, 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 the Democrats sort of um, representing the um, identitarian left, uh, but the Republicans uh, kind of now speaking for the class based left. Um, wh- where's the conservatives? <laughs> I mean, it, I, look, um, I think. We got an election tomorrow, you know, where we're where the people are pre criminating, we're pre revolutionizing <laughs> American politics Um I think the final point to make, and then I want to talk about Steve's Steve's podcast. Um, final point to make is uh, that we, I don't remember. I had a final point. Now I forgot it. So let me go. Steve, because we're looking at a point at which American policy, we may be at a moment of potential sort of long-term realignment or on the path of realignment. Um, 
your podcast, The Revolution, is about a previous realignment that people don't even begin to understand if they've been in, alive for, you know, only really paying attention, which is there was a period of time in which Democrats had control of the House of Representatives uninterruptedly for 40 years. Since 1994, when that changed, control has shifted three times or maybe four, four. certain yeah. four. And in the Senate, which was all, which was bouncier, but in the Senate, it shifted like 27 times. In, 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 it hasn't, but I mean, so considerably more. So four times after 40 years, and this was the result of a 14-year political mission or 15 or 16-year led by Newt Gingrich. So can you talk about your, it's the revolution, go to Apple, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, six episodes. No, th yeah, thank you. And and by the way, if, you'll, you'll hear John in it too. We did a nice uh, recap episode at the end where we had a big picture discussion about kind of the meaning of 94, Newt, the Republican Revolution, all that. John's a big part of that. But yeah, the story that I wanted to tell there was basically 94 as a pivot point. And you alluded to it earlier. Um, where this, I think our, our kind of era of nationalized politics that we're in right now, I think that's a real key point is 1994, because what the Gingrich mission was, was exactly what you were describing earlier. On paper, Republicans were badly outnumbered all those years um, by the New Deal coalition that lasted for a long time, uh, even though you could see it coming apart in, in, in bits and places. You, you got into the 1980s, and Democrats were still winning the vast majority of House seats from the South. They were often very conservative Democrats, but they were winning the vast majority of House seats from the South, coming from states that were voting for Richard Nixon in 72, Ronald Reagan in 80 and 84, Bush Sr. in 88, by massive overwhelming margins. And I think what, what Gingrich saw very early on, and I, I'd, I'd use 72 as an example, is Gingrich saw in Nixon versus McGovern in 72, one of the most colossal rejections of a candidate in American history, George McGovern getting 38% of the vote, losing everywhere except Massachusetts. Um, and Gingrich basically saw if he could, felt that if he could make voters in all 435 congressional districts see the choice between the Republican candidate as the choice between a Republican and a George McGovern, there was no reason Republicans, even though they were absolutely buried in the House, couldn't win the House. And he saw that, that he saw some tools in the way media was changing. There's no coincidence at all. I think that Newt comes to Congress in January of 79 and the cameras, television cameras turn on for the first time in March of 1979 with C-SPAN. You have the rise of cable news in the 1980s. You have the rise of conservative talk radio. Rush Limbaugh becomes 20 million listeners a week by 1990. There were ways to get this kind of message out that were developing that Gingrich, I think, recognized before others did. And I think it took a lot of voters who were sort of, you would call them ancestrally Democratic, but instinctually conservative and really instinctually Republican. And he, his mission was to convince them that it was time to just starting to start voting Republican up and down the ballot. And in 94 was the year it really came together. 54 seat gain, Republicans take the House. And of course, I, I say it's the start because Republicans take in the House in 94, of course, that sets off its own reaction. And I think with the creation of what we now think of as blue America, which is, as we say, it's this suburban metropolitan gender gap, um, college degree gap, all that. I think a lot of that is created in reaction to the rise of, of Newt Gingrich and, and, and the Republican Revolution in 94. And, and the two sides have just kind of been fighting each other and refining who and what they are since. But um, it was a fun, it was a lot of fun to put it together. Yeah, listen, 
in, I don't even remember when it was, August, September, whatever of 94, when the contract with America was released, the classic political read of the contract with America was, what the hell is he doing? We all know that congressional races are decided on local issues. This idea that you're going to make a larger point, uh, you know, uh, that a national for, you know, sort of a 10 point, uh, you know, agenda for the party in the House was like, that's that's crazy. And Bob Dole thought it was crazy. He was, you know, he was he was the Senate minority leader who was on ta- track to being the majority leader if if Gingrich won. And Dole's like, I don't want any part of this. That's not how politics works. And so politics, as usual, isn't static. And so suddenly it worked. Or I mean, I don't know if it really worked in the sense that it made a real difference in whether or not they were going to win this win this nationalized election. But it was a mark. Now we think of house politics as being nationalized from the get-go you know we don't think like okay there's going to be a bill it's kind of a kind of a a handiwork bill and you know there's going to be something in it for the coal states and there's going to have a little bit over here and you have a little bit in the highway the only thing was ever nationalized in the house was the highway bill the highway bill every five years there was a highway bill and then everybody just shoved stuff into the highway bill so they could get some of that free federal money but like most legislation was not national it was sort of jerry-rigged to fit coal you know contrasting coalitions and now you have you know one senator from west virginia or two someone senator from senator from arizona who kind of go like whoa 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 like i you know this bill may not be good for my state and then they're like you are you're you're some kind of a reprehensible what about the country what about global warming like what about and it's like no no like i represent west virginia that was the normal thing it was tip o'neill's line all politics is local the speaker you know when 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 gingrich first got there and it's I, i couldn't be or even look at new york what was Al D'Amato for three terms was a senator and his nickname was Senator Pothole. And the whole idea was he took care of local concerns and he got swept out in 98 because of a nationalized midterm election. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. My God. You know, I was at the I was at the off the record breakfast where Al D'Amato referred to Chuck (laughs) Schumer as a schmuck head. (laughs) And um, uh it was off the record. It was a, it was a different word, wasn't it? It was a no. He said schmuckhead. Oh, I thought it was a sort of he. Uh... No, no. He said schmuckhead. And oh, okay. The weird thing about it was, you know, he's obviously not Jewish, Altamano, right. Italian. <laughs> no one ever said schmuckhead before. You say schmuck, or, or you say s head, but you don't say schmuckhead. Like yeah. that was a neologism. Right. Which is one of the reasons that, you know, I was like, huh, oh, that's a little awkward. But like, it didn't occur to me that it was going to be a huge news story because then essentially Schumer tried to make the point that Tomato was an anti Semite, which was kind of ridiculous. But nonetheless, that was a, that was a weird, that was a, that was an interesting moment in, 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 in Tomato's, Tomato's career. If, if, if there's, this is way too much inside New York yeah. politics, but I'm obsessed yeah. with Tomato's career. And the irony was so great because in 92, he had defied political gravity to get reelected over Bob Abrams. And if you remember, what turned it around was Bob Abrams called him a fascist at yeah. one point. And then D'Amato sent his 83-year-old mother out to say, does he talk that way at home? Yeah. They just milked it for all it was worth. And then, of course, he gets taken down six years later with yeah. his, you know, faux pas. Oh, my God. 
see, I, the one thing I will say, I, I know what I wanted to say, and then Noah may, Noah and Abe. So if you look at all these numbers and you look at this progression and everything, if you look at 2020, because we're, we're about to hear, I believe, a week from today, according to everything we're hearing, that Donald Trump is going to announce his re-election bid. That's what they say on the 14th of November. That's the big leak. So you look at 2020, you look at 2022. Republicans had this bizarrely successful night in the House while Biden won by 7 million votes nationally. Won 14 or was it 14 seats? 13, 14 seats, right? That's not normal. We say that there's no, I mean, maybe, maybe it wasn't ticket splitting. I don't know. But like, th th that's not a normal thing to happen. Um, and then in 2022, you may have this big Republican wave. So how could it be that Republicans do well at the House level? And we wrote a whole piece about this, Noah and I, after 2020. Why do they do well at the House level? Why do they do well at the gubernatorial level in 2020? but not the presidential level. And the answer is that the presidential level was the rejection of Trump, but that the Republican Party was not rejected. In fact, voters seem to go to some lengths not to reject the Republican Party while rejecting Trump. 2022, Trump is not on the ballot. Democrats want him to be on the ballot. Okay. Suddenly, Republicans will be at this high watermark, let's say, if it goes really well, and next Monday, it all comes crashing to an end because the 2024 election begins in earnest and the front runner is in the race. And there's going to be a year of people going, who's going to who's going to go against them and how's it going to work? And Democrats will have a, every day will have Trump to 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 play against. So what do you know? What do you wh where do you where do you see this? Well, going? it's not just Trump. I mean, Trump has sort of been a background radiation in our national conversation for a very long time when he throws his hat into the ring once again it'll clarify and crystallize thing and i, and I imagine we'll have a, a mar-a-lago like cycle which lasted much longer than a cycle but let's say close to a month where his just presence uh exerts a lot of downward pressure on republicans their image but when we, we all expect i think republicans will take the house and they've written a lot of checks that they're going to struggle to cash uh, crime is a local issue. Republicans in Congress can fund and defund stuff. They can throw out some grants, maybe. But this is a local issue. Education is the same. Immigration is an issue that they've written a lot of checks on. And how are they going to make Joe Biden enforce the border? National security, again, seems to be a very tempting issue for Republicans to out Joe Biden, Joe Biden, when it comes to uh, support for Ukraine, for example, investigating what happened in Afghanistan. And of course, inflation, there is no pain-free cure for inflation. And Republicans will be expected to take the ball and run with it. And that will mean paring back spending. It'll mean deficit reduction. The cure for inflation is pain. And Republicans will own a lot of that. So I expect them to really regret the good night they're going to have tomorrow night, which okay, I think they're but... going to have a pretty good night in very short order. As for the as for yeah. Donald Trump and his ex has his future, what have you. Uh, if Ron DeSantis wants to get in and there's some conflicting reports about whether he wants to get in or not. And if he doesn't get in, his presidential ambitions, I think, are over. Um, but if he does get in, he's not going to get in before the legislative session in Florida is over. Right. I mean, he's going to want to have at least one legislative session yeah. as this reelected. So that's governor. the end that's of May. May. So that would be the end of May. Yeah. Well, OK, here's what here's what I wanted to say. And then I want I want Abe to jump in. So if Trump comes in, 
Noah's talking about all the issues that Republicans are going to be sorry that they dealt with and all of this. And all this is like the this is like we're going to have two years of the OJ trial all over again. I mean, this is a gift to Steve's network. It's a gift. It's a gift to everybody to have while you have this fading presence in the in the presidency in my view i don't want to put you know i don't want steve to be associated with anything i'm going to say about biden now but you have you have the issues about biden and you'll have trump there and you want to talk about republicans and issues no one's going to talk about republicans and issues maybe voters are going to care but no one it's all going to be look look at the insult that trump did today to you know, he hears that Lisa Murkowski might might run for dog catcher. He's going to call her, you know, Lisa the idiot or something like that. Um, I, I do want to say though, before we go, that I think that Ron DeSanctimonious is too witty. Like it's a mistake. It was actually it's actually very suitable to that commercial that 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 DeSantis just released, which I thought his first ad like two weeks ago was amazing, and this is demented. God, God called upon Ron DeSantis to emerge in Florida. Like, I'm sorry, I did the going a little too far there, but I mean, because should have been like Ron the stupid, not Ron the sanctimonious. Like, that's that's where Trump's insults usually go. Sanctimonious is too many syllables. Abe, I, I think I, I'm very close to to that opinion, but I think another way of saying it is it's not necessarily that it's too witty. It's just not ugly enough. It's not nasty uh, enough, right? Uh, yeah. His 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 you know uh, little Marco is is nasty, low yeah, energy Jeb is nasty. Uh, perhaps his nastiest was you know uh, sloppy Steve when when he when Bannon got crosswise of him. Oh yeah, um, right. but I I think there's something else at work here, just delving into the nickname phenomenon, which is um, whether or not it's a good nickname, whether or not it's it's too witty or not nasty enough. Something about the act itself of Trump giving his opponents a nickname begins to work um, uh, both among his among his base and undoubtedly on the opponent. Um, it, 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 it sort of begins to eat away um, at 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 the other side, regardless of how good or bad it is. Well, that's you've so, been tagged, you right. know. So and, how would and, that work, Abe? Because now he's been tagged as self-righteous, preening, moralistic. So he well, needs to put his head. To, the thing about DeSantis is he's got two faces, right? One face is he's the culture war, and the other face is he's a hyper competent executive um, who right. gets things done, including, by the way, getting things done as a culture warrior. So then you would have this situation which he's like, "Look, you can call me, you can call me sanctimonious all you like. Uh, I, I, you know, I uh, opened, I opened everything, and you kept everything closed. I would have fired Fauci. You didn't fire Fauci." You know, so, you know, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I talk about God more than you do, but um, you know what? I was better. I'm better at my job than you ever were. It's all a question of whether he wants to go there. And right. I don't know. We just don't know. And Tom Cotton, of course, we just heard last night that Tom Cotton is not running for president. He's the first sort of like, and Cotton's a profile, right? Because he's 40, like DeSantis. He's young. He's in his early 40s. Um, and therefore, I know he'll have more bites at the apple. But also, like, if Trump's in, like, then he's in a position where he would have to spend a year, like, being either being a punching bag or or punching back. And, like, that's just, you know, if you have a low, if you're if you have a low probability of winning, it, it's it's not worth putting yourself up for the roasting, which is why this may not not happen. But I just do think we have an issue with issues. There's an issue with issues if Trump's in the race. 
we move away from an issue-based conflict between Democrats and Republicans to a total personality. It's Biden senile. Is Trump crazy? You know, I hate Trump. I love Trump. I, you know, Biden needs to be 25th amendmented out. He doesn't, whatever. And then, then we're just off. We're, we're in a easier, easier cycle to understand because people are just going to, you know, how's Trump today? What's Trump's approval rating today? What's Biden's approval rating today? What's Kamala Harris's approval? What's Gavin Newsom's approval rating? Because that's the big thing you're going to start hearing, in my view. Steve, what do you think of this? Final question. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I've been saying since, since 2020 was resolved that I think the most likely matchup in 2024 is a rematch of 2020. And I, I, I you know, I, I, I think there's the, the loyalty that Trump has from Republican voters. There's just the track record of watching him mow down these Republicans who have all thought they had the clever combination of, you know, rhetorical skills and record or whatever, or issues to beat him with. And, and so, and I think from the democratic standpoint, it's, it's, you know, um, if Trump is the nominee and they look at Biden and it's sort of like, well, we, we, we beat him with Biden once before. If it's not Biden, who is it? And I think they got a real mess on their hands in terms of there's just there's no consensus. There's no clear consensus alternative to Biden I could see emerging. And if Biden's expressing interest and is adamant that he wants to run, I could see Democrats kind of reaching the conclusion that, okay, this is the president. He says he's running. He's beaten him before. Trump's capable of beating himself. Maybe we just go with Biden again. That's where I go. Just structurally, it's difficult to comprehend how Democrats would sign themselves up for the kind of chaos that would follow abdication. Um, you know, here's the uh, I want to give you the Godzilla versus Kong scenario, because there's a terrible movie called Godzilla versus Kong. But it ends in some, you know, in the ocean, there's Godzilla and there's Kong. And they one of them must be, must be the dominating force. And then out of nowhere comes a robot version of Godzilla and Godzilla and Kong have to team up to kill Mecha Godzilla. So the question is, you're going to have Trump versus Biden. Does a Mecha Godzilla show up? Does the Mecha, is there a, the whole thing here is somebody's got to come and break this cycle. Like we can't just do this forever, but Otherwise, they're just going to like kill each other in the, you know, in the Sea of Japan or something like that. I don't I don't it, like the thought that we're going to do two years of this. Is so horrifying and yet it is the likeliest scenario. But OK, last question, last, last, last question. Gavin Newsom, governor of the largest state in the country, not only, you know, uh, survived, not only survived this recall effort, but like crushed his enemies. He's telegenic. He's young. People are very dismissive of it. Being governor of California worked for somebody once 40 years ago uh, in coming from the West and helping to, you know, save his party from Eastern whatever. Kamala Harris, also from California, not making a good showing of herself as vice president. Isn't he like, are people like under it underestimate because we live in you know we all live in the east coast and people don't like see newsom every day i don't know he's got like you know he's gonna say there's 78 billion people in california it's like 10 more than 10 percent of the population in the united states alone 
I feel it's I, I feel it's viewed skeptically because of Cal, how much the politics of California have just changed. Mm -hmm. For Reagan to win the governorship of, of California was a real achievement, um, you know, to beat Pat Brown, to get reelected. And, you know, it was seen as a swing. It was a swing state in our politics. It was yeah. huge. It was a swing state. And now it's just it's where Democrats bank the most votes. So mm -hmm. I don't know that Newsom's proven anything about broad electoral appeal yet out there. Right. OK. I don't know. There's got to be more to talk about than Trump versus Biden, but I'm worried that there is going to be nothing more to talk about it, than it, Trump versus Biden. There were there were 25 Democrats who ran in 2020, and yeah. none of them could get any traction, as it turned out, really, except in the end, Biden. Yeah. Steve Cornack, everybody go subscribe to Steve Cornacki's podcast, The Revolution. I'm on the last episode. It's the worst one because the others are so much better because it's we're just analyzing it, and Steve actually tells um the story which um is really a very important political story in the united states if you're if you're not if you if you don't either don't remember it or really haven't known that much about it the 15 years from 79 to 94 that led to the the takeover of the house and the republican party is one of the greatest political stories of uh, in american history certainly in modern american history so the Revolution, Steve Kornacki. Thank you so much for coming on again. I hope you have good sneakers. I know you're going to be up for like four straight nights because we're not going to have results. And then there's going to be the question of whether or not Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock can get, you know, like one more vote that gets them over 50% to avoid a runoff. And that could take days and all sorts of things. Pennsylvania could take days because of how they count the vote. And so we could just, you're, you're going to like, you're not going to sleep, right? No. I'm not sleeping Tuesday night. I already know that. And, and you know, we'll see how long it goes. But this is what I signed up for. So, uh, well, we love it. Everybody we go. in America, <laughs> lo this is, this is, like I said, this is like you're, it's Mahomes going into the Super Bowl. I'm thrilled to have you today. And so I believe our Abe, Noah, and Christine. And so for them, uh, John Pot Hortz, keep the candle burning.